Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Father, we love you. We love your word. We love your beautiful son. We ask you to open our ears today and open our eyes and soften our hearts that we would be able to hear Jesus, see Jesus, that what he has to say, Lord, you'd speak to every one of us, right? Go right after our heart. And I pray that I would get out of the way. We want you, Lord. We want to love you and see you. It's you that we follow as our, as our Lord, and we become your disciples. I ask you, Lord, empower us, grace us today. Grace me to speak your word. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. We saw Jesus teach on that um, illustration of the vine. He said, uh, I am the vine, meaning the woody stalk of a a grapevine. And you, he said, are the branches, meaning those green flexible canes that grow out of the woody stalk on a grapevine. And it's upon those green canes that the grapes grow each season. The, uh, he has gone out of the upper room. This is the night he's betrayed. Uh, he will, within hours, uh, be arrested. Uh, we're probably, if I was just going to guess, we're about an hour and a half off of it. And he takes them out of the upper room. And because Judas has had time to go to the temple and tell them, I know where he is. And they would put together the Levit- Levitical guard. It wasn't Roman soldiers that came, but together with Levitical guard, and they will come out with some of the priests, leaders, and all, and they'll arrest him. But they'll come, first of all, to the upper room where he left him, and he'll be gone, because it wasn't time yet. He still had more to teach. We're hearing that lesson uh, right now. And he had more to, more to say, so he's got his, his 11, somewhere out under a full moon, it's, it's Passover, somewhere out in those empty streets, or I, I would guess he's probably heading east, uh, just there out of the city of David into the Kidron Valley. Uh, Kidron Valley has terrace gardening along its sides and certainly on its north end and all of that. And, and uh, I think in the moonlight, he's stopped by a vine, probably walking through a vineyard. And he says to them, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And he, began, and he gives them a warning. And we heard that warning. It's not a comfortable warning that we heard. He says, I'm the vine and you stay attached. And he said, if you don't stay attached, he said, you dry up, you, you cease to bear fruit. The farmer comes, he picks you, he throws you into a pile, dries you, and then he burns you. Now, there's just no way around that. It's a warning <laughs> and an unpleasant and uncomfortable one. I had, I had uh, uh, some, you know, we, I tried to, to show you how much the Lord has provided in the way of, our, of, our, of, our, of, our, of sustaining our faith. We said there, he has he has basically an infinite amount of mercy. We can repent of our sins and turn to him. We said that he, we read from Paul where he says, he surrounds us, uh, that no, no power in, in death nor life nor, nor things pre- future or present and you know, angels and principalities and powers and all of those things can take us away from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Someone challenged me and said, well, you contradicted yourself. You said that, uh, you know, that we, can, we have to stay attached and come out. And actually, I didn't say that. Another guy did. Um, 
Jesus. Um, <laughs> but here's what, here's what Paul just said. He said, God has surrounded you, and nothing external can take you away from him. No force will ever seize you. But as I said to that person, but we're still responsible to stay there. Do you understand that? It can be both and, not either or. And, and, and so, yes, he's provided all of this. I have, a, I have been, to, Paul has told me that, that the Lord's at the right hand of the Father, interceding for me constantly. Hallelujah. That he is, all of these things are, are, are surround me and protect me. But he's also said, the Lord said to me, stay attached. Stay mine. How do we do that? Just nurture your faith. Your spiritual life is the most precious treasure you have. This is, your walk with God is, is not only for now. It, it, the moment you breathe your last breath, you're going to step across into his arms. This is, this is real and it's forever. You're a spirit. You do not die. You do not cease. You will not, you will not end when your body dies. Don't let anyone tell you that. It's not true. You will continue on. And where you continue on, if we're separated from him here, you're separated from him there. It's irreversible. On the other side, there's no change. This is why what we do, this whole thing is so urgent. It's why we, we tell others. It's why we do all that we do. It, it, you can't change on the other side. You meet him now, and this is the season for it. And so we're, he, he's warned them, and he says, stay attached. Once he's finished that warning, he then goes into rapid fire. I mean, just boom, boom, boom. You'll see. He goes into promises. And he says, now here, you're my disciples. And here are your gifts from me. You need, he says, what I have. In other words, the, the grace that's over me, now that I send you forth, you'll need. And, and so he, he gives him this wonderful list. I'm going to preach it just the way he preached it. We're just, I have uh, John... Uh, obviously memorize these things and he, and he just picks those just boom, boom, boom. He goes right on down. Now, you know they were very good at memorization then. Uh, as, a, as a Jewish young boy or a young girl, both were, uh, you would begin to memorize the Torah at, at age uh, four. By the time they're, they're, they're teenagers, they've memorized the entire five books of Moses and probably Isaiah and a few others to boot. I mean, so memorization is big on for them. So as John's listening to him, he's, he's putting this into his memory. He's put, you can just hear him hit the beautiful points, he's one statement after another, and he puts it into his memory. And that's what he's related to us, the, the, the treasures that the Lord has given to us. May he open our ears now, because we're, how, how many are saying, I'm his disciple. I'm not just a churchgoer. I, I'm, you know, whatever that means. I mean, I think church is fine. But I'm a disciple. This is for you. We'll start at verse 7, uh, John 15. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Would you say, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you? My Father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Would you say much fruit? much fruit? Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Would you say abide in my love? Abide in my love. 
These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Would you say my joy? This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. Would you say love one another? You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Would you say, friends of Jesus? Jesus. And then finally, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. Would you say, he chose me? He chose me. Okay, here we go. Equipping disciples. To become a disciple of Jesus Christ requires enormous sacrifice. Basically, it requires a person to give Jesus the control of their life. From that point on, he or she will choose over and over again to live in such a way as to do whatever they can to help others meet him. When Jesus called someone, he never hid that fact from them. He never lured anyone with false promises of an easy life. Instead, he did the opposite. He warned them that following him would cost them everything. But he also assured them that that if they chose that path, it would lead to eternal life, not only for them, but for many more who would come to him through them. Those who gave up everything to follow him would be given the spiritual resources they needed to become highly effective ministers. No one was being asked to sacrifice their pleasures and ambitions in exchange for a meager life of self-denial. He wasn't making those demands to be mean. He was asking people to trade in those things for something far better. Those who chose to deny themselves daily and take up their cross and follow him would be given gifts which would transform each of them into a disciple who would change the world. They would be empowered to do the most important work a human being can do. They would be partnering with God to save lost people. Through them, he would change eternal destinies. He did not hide the price ever. He said this, he said, if you're going to follow me, you must daily deny yourself. And then he talked, he said, pick up your cross. Now, for us, a cross is a religious symbol. We think, yeah, that's beautiful. No, no, a cross for them, it was a horrible, grotesque instrument of execution. It was the ugliest thing that Romans could come up with. Uh, in order to make you die miserably. How can we make you suffer when you die? Well, they did that. And uh, they did it by the thousands. And they put people on it. So Jesus says, you want to follow me? I'll tell you where you'll end up. <laughs> on one of those. It, it, either physically or spiritually. I mean, there's a sense where you're going to die. Come and follow me. You say, well, that's, that's a little grim. But he said, here's what he wants. He's saying, You're going to have to give up this world. But he's not saying for a meager life of self-denial. He says, I want you to empty your arms so I can put into your arms real spiritual treasure. I'm asking you to exchange. I'm asking you to follow me so that I can cause you to do the most important work a human being can do. 
I'm going to use your life to change the eternal destinies of human beings. That's what I'm going to use you for. I'll provide for you. I'll care for you. All of that. But I'm not trying to give you just the stuff of the world. I'm trying to give you things. What do you call it? A treasure in heaven. And and what is treasure in heaven? People. I'm going to use you so that people are in heaven with your heavenly father. Is there going to be anything more wonderful than that? Can you imagine when you, when you finally step across and there are people that you have loved or influenced one way or another who come up to you and say, I just want to tell you what your life meant to me. You know, thank you so much. What a blessing. That, that's the treasure. That's what we're living for. That's his, whole, that's his priority system. Within hours, Jesus would be taken away from those 11 men. So he wasted no words in warning them about the dangers that lay ahead. That's that whole thing with the vine and the branches. But he also wasted no words in promising them that God would give them the spiritual resources they would need to be, to be successful in their discipleship. And as we listen to the wonderful promises he made that night, it's important that you and I remember that both, both his warnings... And his promises were meant for a greater audience than the disciples huddled around him on that moonlit night. They were meant for every man or woman who would follow in their footsteps. They were meant for you and me, if we have chosen to become his disciples. And the promises, those promises will equip us just as powerfully as they equipped them. If we learn to receive the gifts he promised that night, we too will bear much fruit. Let's listen to each one of them and learn to walk in its power. Has it ever crossed your mind when I'm reading all of these things? Is he talking to those 11 or is he talking to to me? Does this apply to me? Or am I being presumptuous to assume that those promises and all of these things are mine as well? I, uh, I, you know, you can look at that and ask that question, but I had no idea how deep that runs. And I'm reading a book right now. um, Mary and I sit down and read and, and we, we're one of, we read it through those books, uh, uh, Christian Heroes Then and Now. We got them in the bookstore. Those are fabulous. Right now we're reading a, on William Carey. And William Carey was uh, really the, one of the first missionaries ever to go out of England. And uh, just, it, here's the atmosphere, okay? So he, he wants to go to India. And he, wants, he feels like the Lord wants him to go there. So he, ta- he talks to his ministerial association and all that. And, and they say to him, sit down, young man. If God wants to win India, he'll do it and without your help. They actually felt it was presumption and outrage. This sovereign God who saves who he wants to and damns who he wants to, that's that whole Calvinistic thing, that he, if he wants people in India, he'll get them. He doesn't need you to do it. Now, he went anyway. Aren't we grateful? <laughs> but they actually had this theology. I could I couldn't, I could I mean, I knew it existed. It just... But it made me so mad to read it. Uh, I almost brought it in and read it to you. Yeah, it did cross my mind. And, and they, they said, well, all of these promises, now I'm not making this up, all of these promises in here, all of this discussion is for those 11, for the, who, those who would become the apostles. They're not for us. These, these things aren't for us. It's for those guys. Oh, no, I'm going to prove it to you right now. You're going to come away going, he is so right. Here we go. Look with me at John chapter 17. This is a beautiful verse. John 17 is is what we call a high priestly prayer. 
It's the last thing Jesus will do in this, this night we're talking about right now. I mean, I, where we've stopped somewhere in a vineyard, I think, and he will then go across. Uh, he, will, he will pray this prayer, and then he'll go across to the, to the Garden of Gethsemane. But look at verse 20. I'll start at verse 19. This, this is a prayer he's praying over those 11 men. Okay? And I'll just pick up at verse 19. For their sakes, he's praying to the Father about them. I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. How many of you believe in Christ through the word of those apostles? Come on. Five of you? Come on. Raise your hands. Yes. You. See? I'm, he, he, when he's talking to them, He's talking to those who come to him through them. They are the representatives. There are representatives. So he's speaking to all of us. There was 11 men huddled in the moonlight. We would be there too. If we could be, we'd be sitting around him too. This, these are his words for us. Here we go. Contin conditional promises. There are times when God gives unconditional promises. He says, I'm going to do this whether you obey me or not. But most of the promises we find in the Bible are conditional promises. Some of those unconditional promises, you hear the phrase, uh, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. Have you read that? He's often talking to situations where the people are, 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 are I mean, they don't deserve anything. They're, they're, they're rebellious or whatever. And he says, I'm going to save this city. I'm going to uh, protect you and keep a remnant. I will keep the seed, which he's referring to the Messiah. I'm going to protect it because I have a promise to keep to Abraham. I have a savior I must bring. And so I'm going to do this in spite, no matter what you do, I'm going to do this. For the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. Now, by my righteousness, I will do it, whether you don't behave righteously or not. That's an unconditional promise. But there are conditional promises where God says, if you will do this, then I will do that. To receive a conditional promise, a person must do what God requires. And as we listen to those promises Jesus made that evening, most of them were conditional promises. He repeatedly used the word if. If they would remain in him, if they would obey his commands, if they would love one another, then wonderful resources would be given to them. They would receive the same gifts that he had received. After using a grapevine to illustrate how important it was for his disciples to remain attached to him, Jesus went on to describe the gifts they would receive if they obeyed. If they would continue to stay attached, to believe and, and obey, uh, believe in him and depend on him, he would give them all the resources they would need to succeed. As I study this passage, I recognize seven such gifts. He mentions more elsewhere, but today let's study these seven. Each is an essential part of the equipment a disciple needs to fulfill Jesus' calling. Each brings the power we need to be fruitful. They are some of the treasures we've turned our backs on the world to possess. So let's examine them one by one. You dropped the things of the world when you said yes to Jesus so you could possess these, among other things. Let's hear them. Number one, powerful prayers. Would you say that? If you and I are going to be fruitful, we must be able to pray with great authority. 
Jesus prayed with great authority because he walked in careful obedience to the Father. His prayers were always answered because he always asked for what God led him to ask for. That evening he said to his disciples, If you remain in me, meaning stay attached to me, and my sayings remain in you, stay obedient, whatever you, shall ask, whatever you ask shall happen to you. In other words, he promised them a prayer life as effective as his own. If they would let him guide them, if they would listen before they asked, when they, when they asked, they would receive. And that's exactly what John heard him say. Because years later, in a letter, John wrote this. Would you, would you read this out loud with me? This is the confidence which we have before him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know he hears us in whatever we ask, we know we have the requests which we have asked of him. If I ask according to his will, if what I ask him is his will, I know he hears me. And if I know he hears me, I have what I've asked of him. Now, this gets people kind of conflicted. They think, well, how do I know what his will is? And so you find a lot of people going, God, I, we, you know, we need this. If it be your will, if it be your will, you know. But, uh, you know, and they mean well. I mean, they're trying, to, they're trying to be submitted. They're trying to cooperate. But, but actually, it becomes kind of uh, powerless when you pray that way. Uh, and so the question is, can I know his will? Should I know his will before I pray? Ah, that changes the equation. Well, first of all, there are ways we know his will. Here's one of them. It's called the Bible. And, and, if we, and when we read that, we learn a great deal about him. Does he, for example... If I was going to pray for a lost person, do I need to wonder if God wants to save that person? I mean, is it, what's his will? Now, maybe you, wanted, maybe you don't want this guy. Maybe you do. You know what I mean? How do I pray? Can, can I know he wants him? Okay, so, so I know when I ask and I start praying for someone who doesn't know Christ. I know I'm being heard, don't I? Ah, and if I ask... And if I'm being heard, then I have the petition which I ask him. In other words, he will move on that person. It doesn't mean he, can, he doesn't take and suspend their will and sort of, you know, lift them up by the hair and make them saved. But he will work with that person. I, I had this, this actually crossed my mind this, this uh, yesterday. No, what's today? Yeah, two days ago. I'm sitting in my office uh, writing and, and uh, all of this, and, I, and I, I, I'm looking out my window at... Uh, at a, at a neighbor's house a few doors down, and it appears to me that a particular cult group has, had come to their door. And it's a young couple, and, and uh, I thought, oh, no, not that. Because if you're coming back, I've seen it before. I thought, oh, no. And then I thought, Lord, you know, and then, of course, I'm thinking, oh, I'm so sorry, I haven't been more aggressive. Oh, God, I'll, I'll help me. But, but, I, but I said this, Lord, I, I pray, uh, open their eyes, open their ears. Give them wisdom to see uh, this deception when they see, hear it. Watch over them. And then I'm kind of praying, and I'm still worried. And then the Lord said, is that according to my will? Yeah. He says, then you have what you asked for. Thank me for it. Okay, thank you, Lord, that you just interceded here. Thank you that you did something that opened ears. You follow this? You see, he, you and I must pray powerful prayers. We have got to learn to pray powerful prayers. And it begins with this whole idea. What is his will? So I said, first of all, 
you have all kinds of instruction. How does he feel about sick people? Tends to like to heal them, doesn't he? How does he like oppressed people? Likes to set them free, last I checked. Uh, so, so you understand? You don't have to go gaming the whole thing. Like, I don't know what he wants. No, 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 don't stop that. You know a great deal about what he wants. And then on a day-to-day basis, there's the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's a, a, a very critical part of that. And we keep bringing it up. You and I have to learn to say, Father, how do I deal with this? I will tell you that in terms of seeing miraculously answered prayers, real breakthrough, things happen and move and shift when I pray. It is almost always a result of when I have felt led by the Lord to pray a particular thing or do so, and then I do that and boom, there's the answer. I, I, I've, that, that, it's different. I'll pray general prayers. I'll give you my best shot. But when he's told me what to pray or shown me something, that's where the breakthrough happens over and over again. You say, well, I can't do that. Well, you will be able to because I have a class. (laughs) That's what that doing what Jesus did is about. Uh, How do you pray pray for the sick by revelation? How do you get the word of knowledge, the word of wisdom? You can learn these things. In fact, may I say, you must. This is New Testament Christianity. There is no Christianity you're going to find in the Bible about come and sit in, a, sit in rows, sing three hymns, put some money in the plate, and go home. That doesn't exist. The New Testament entirely envisions men and women full of God, led by God, doing what they're told, and seeing great fruit. That was what happened. That's why the early church was so dynamic. And that's what God is restoring in these days. He's bringing this back. He's bringing back foundational Christianity, authentic ancient Christianity, where we walk with the Lord. And when we do, stuff happens. And it is happening all the time because people are doing exactly this. So this business of if I ask according to his will, that's not an iffy thing. It's not a weak thing. It's not like you're not tossing up wishes and hopes. Assess it. But if you don't know what his will is, then, then figure that out before you pray. And then when you've figured it out, pray with authority. Pray boldly and pray strong and pray expecting an answer because he promises you one. Somebody say amen to that. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you. To be fruitful disciples, you and I must be able to pray powerful prayers. That's the foundation of all effective ministry. When Jesus prayed, things happened. People were healed, delivered, guided, comforted. They, they listened to what he said because they saw what he did. And, all, and those things happened because God was answering his prayers. So the first gift Jesus gave that evening was the key that unlocks our prayer life. If we will walk with him as he walked with the Father, we too will pray prayers he will answer. Number two, much fruit. Would you say much fruit? The next statement Jesus made was this. By this was, and it is past tense in the Greek, was my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and you will be my disciples. I think it's in the past because Jesus is saying when the Lord, when when the Father ordained all of this, he said, I'm going to have your, those who become your disciples will bear much fruit. It's through them, this kingdom. In other words, this is an ancient thing that in the heart of the Father. That tells us the scope of God's plans for each of Jesus' disciples. The Father is glorified when Jesus' disciples bear much fruit, not a little fruit. Now, you and I aren't able to measure fruitfulness the way God can. 
We have no idea what the result will be when we bring the love of Jesus to one person. We don't know how many will be reached because we reached that one particular person. We don't know the lasting impact of a kind word or deed. But God does. And his promise is that if we allow Jesus to lead us, he, we will produce much fruit, every single one of us. So the second gift Jesus gave his disciples is great potential. He revealed the will of God. That means that if we obey Jesus, we will in one way or another affect the eternity of many. And that shouldn't surprise us because the God we serve always does more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that works within us. There's something inside us that thinks, um, I think we look at our own abilities, our own, I don't know, personality or, or, or physical things or education or whatever, and you think, I can't change the eternal destiny of people. I mean, there's other people maybe, but it's not me. You're right. You can't. But when God looks at us, he's not thinking Wow, do you have a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of potential there in terms of your abilities. What he's looking for is your obedience. He wants, if you'll do what he asks you to do, he then does the miracle. Do you follow that? And so, remember Moses? He says, I can't talk well. And he probably apparently stuttered. But God said, God, how did God reply? Who made the mouth? Last I checked, I did. You know? <laughs> And he turned him into one of the greatest orators that's ever lived. In other words, God just needs you to say yes. He doesn't need, he doesn't assess your stuff. He just needs you to say yes. In fact, I think he takes great delight in taking people who the world would overlook and doing marvelous things through them. Because when, when it's done, the world goes, it's got to be God. It can't be you. Huh? I mean, I mean, some people, you know, they're so, they're so gifted and dynamic and everything. They could do it with or without God. But most of us need him. I'm just joking there. Um, there's a, there's a uh, parable that a lot of people pick up on. It's the parable of the talents. And in that parable, you've got a fellow that's got given five talents. That means it's a, a talent is a certain weight of silver. It's a lot of money. And another person is given two talents. And then there's this one dude that gets one talent. And he goes and buries it in a, in a napkin in the ground. And that's the whole story. And, and, but here's what people do with that. They all go, oh, I'm the one talent person. I'm just a little old, meager old me, you know, with my one little talent. I mean, there's all these others, but there's just little old me. God doesn't expect much from me. Yes, he does. But I want to say that's a misuse of that parable. He says he will cause much fruit for you. Much fruit. That by this is the Father glorified. It isn't even about you. The Father's glorified when you bear much fruit. I'll, just, I'll share this here. We had a meeting this uh, Thursday with the men's council. We're having, uh, we've, been, we've been having a series of meetings getting ready for the fall men's conference in September. And uh, we've had a real time this year, difficult time finding the theme. What are we going to 
Why do we talk about this year? Because we're not just looking for something to talk about. We, we ask prophetically, God, what are you saying to the men? And uh, it often ends up being what God's saying to the whole church. It's, a, it, it's got a, a, a spillover effect. And we've sought him and sought him and sought him, and we've, we've changed a couple of times, and, and now we have it. And the, what, what it's gonna, the, the, the title's going to be, Walking on Water, The Joy of Being Desperate. And, and the, the point is, uh, you've got to step out. And it's in that moment of, of, of stepping out of your abilities, stepping into the impossible, Things that scare you. And so what we did is we just said, let's, let's just test this out. And we went around the, the table. And I said, all right, where has God asked you to step out of the boat? Where have you had to step and, and do something that was crazy? It made, made no sense, you know, everything against you. And what was the fear factor you faced? And then what happened? And so we just asked each man one after another. And it was just amazing to hear every man said, well, God asked me to do this. It didn't make any sense to me at all. I thought, I can't possibly, but, you know, I just did it. Well, what happened? Boom, all of this fruit. I'm, what I'm trying to say by that is, if you will follow him, he will ask you to do things, and because you'll obey him, you will touch lives and have an effect be way beyond your understanding. See, you don't know when you touch one person who you've touched. You don't know that what they'll do. Think, think of Ananias in, in Acts chapter 9. You know that story? Paul, is, um, Paul was this angry Pharisee leader. He's coming up to Damascus in Syria to arrest any Christians he can find. And what he means is they're going to take him to the synagogue. If they're men, they'll strip him to the waist, put him face down, and, and, and whip him. Until they renounce Christ. Uh, they can whip them 40 times and then they have to quit. And, and, uh, and then if they don't, they'll take them to, to Jerusalem and uh, kill them. Uh, put them under trial and then execute them. So he's coming up and he meets Jesus on the way. Remember this? And, and it's, a, it's a physical, vis, visual encounter with Jesus. Paul looks, Paul being Paul, looks straight into the light and it, and it damages his eyes. So when he finally arrives in Damascus and stays at a place named, a house named with Judas right on the, the main boulevard, um, he's in the back room. He's blind as a bat. He can't see anything. He's in complete chaos. And this Judas thinks he's going to get this leader from the, from the high priest who's going to come up here and persecute Christians. And he's got Paul back there. Well, Ananias, this, this Christian man in town, has the Lord come to him and say, I want you to go and and uh, pray for Paul, for Saul of Tarsus. He's at the house of Judas. And Ananias does take the time to remind him, he's the one killing us all, right? You know? And, and God doesn't say, oh, you'll be all right. He doesn't say that at all. He says, go, I told you to go. Okay. You know. So he shows up and he says, Brother Saul, God sent me. And, and then he, first of all, he prays for his healing. And, and then it says scales came off. And you know what those are? With, with Saul's eyes, had, he looked into this to the point that his eyes were damaged. They were burned by looking at the glory of God. And so he's peeling off these, these scabs. He's peeling off the, the dried ooze. Forgive me. All that's coming off his eyes, and he can see again. And then Ananias prays for him to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And, oh, honey, did... did, did, did he get baptized in the Holy Ghost. I mean, we're talking to Apostle Paul. So the power's on him. 
And then he baptizes him. Now, to our knowledge, the only person we know of that Ananias reached was Saul of Tarsus. Does he have any fruit? He happened to tell Yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? You don't know when you're, pre when you're a Sunday school teacher and you're teaching a three-year-old and lead that little sweetheart to the Lord. You have no idea who you just led. I've had times, you know, sometimes and I've been in situations and, and uh, maybe it's a difficult weekend or something. Or I've had times when, it, you know, attendance is maybe down and the Lord says to me, you have no idea who's written in front of you. You preach your heart out. You preach your heart out. You see, we look at numbers. He looks at hearts. And he knows who he's sowing on. God's going to make you fruitful. You will touch people who will touch people. Yeah. If you read one, it may be you let us all. If, but it'll be more than that if you'll walk with the Lord. I'll, I'll get off that, but that's much fruit. God's attending presence, would you say that? The evidence of God's favor was present in everything Jesus did. When he spoke, the Spirit confirmed his words. When he prayed, his prayers were answered. And whenever he ministered, you could sense that the presence of God was there. He was immersed in an atmosphere of continual protection and provision. It was evident to all who watched and listened that God loved him. That's what made it so hard for his critics. They were trying to deny what was obvious to everyone. Now, just think about it. Have you ever been in a room where the power of God is just thick? It's like the air is heavy. It's like, it's like it's, it's, there's a warmth in the situation. Have you been somewhere where just God's at work? Yes? Imagine what it was like to be where Jesus was ministering. Oh, my goodness. I'd give anything, anything to have been there. When he, here's, here's the Lord himself ministering. Just think of the power and the love and the, and the grace that's over that whole situation. You know, it was very hard when, when, when you're watching, feeling that love of God to say, well, he's, he's doing it by the finger of Beelzebul, you know. <laughs> the, the, the Lord, all of it, it, it just didn't work. Everybody's going, really? You know, I mean, <laughs> serious? Yeah, I mean, it just didn't work. That's what he's pointing to in this statement. He's not saying, if, if, if you obey me, I'll love you. And if you don't, I'm withdrawing my love. That's not the point. He's saying, wherever I've been, that great love, that, that, the approval of God, the pleasure of God, the favor of God has been over me. He's validated me. And if you'll obey me, that love will be with you. He said, you'll have that attending presence. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love as I have kept my father's commands. He wasn't implying by that statement that God withdraws his affections every time I, someone disobeys. He had already made it abundantly clear that God loves even those who don't know him. God so loved who? The world that he gave his only begotten son. While we were yet sinners, he loved us. His point was that by our obedience, we too will remain in a place where God can openly show his love and approval of us by surrounding us with his presence. You know people where the power of God is there, the favor of God. That doesn't mean they don't have troubles. You can watch some people deeply anointed going through great tragedies. But honestly, that's sometimes the most powerful witness of all. You watch someone going through a, through a terrible death situation or something like that, but the presence of God, the peace of God is there. It's enormous. That's what he's saying. I'll go with you. My presence will be evident to all on your life. You walk with me. You obey me. 
And the same grace that's been over me will be over you. Sustaining joy, would you say that? Nothing brings a disciple greater joy than seeing God work in and through us. So the fourth gift Jesus promised his disciples was that, that if they would obey as he had obeyed, they would experience the same joy he experienced. He called that joy my joy. Would you say my joy? In other words, their hearts would be filled with his joy when they watched lost people come to salvation or saw someone healed or used the authority of his name to rescue someone from oppression or felt strengthened as they stepped out to minister. That was his source of joy and it would soon become theirs as well. You're giving up the joys of the world in a sense. But what is your joys? Is there a better joy than watching Watching people come out of their brokenness, get saved. Is there a better joy than watching someone who's been sick and oppressed and struggling, suddenly walking whole? To know that you even had a part in that, that's joy. It just fills your heart. You go, this, I mean, honestly, it's those, what, this is why I was made kinds of moments. You know, you watch God use you and you go, yes, that's why I'm, that's why I'm alive. That's the joy he's talking about. He says, my joy, what I've been living on, you're going to have. Fill your hearts as well. A devoted community. Would you say a devoted community? Everything Jesus taught that evening assumed that his disciples would be part of a community of believers. That community was his fifth gift to them. If they were to become fruitful, they must not allow their love for one another to die. They must not become isolated. He said, this is my command, that you love one another as I've loved you. Greater love than this has no one, that he would lay down his life for his friends. He wanted them to see the depth of his love for them, the love that would soon lead him to the cross. But he also wanted them to understand how important it would be that they love each other the same way. Each of them was designed by God to function as a part of a diverse, interdependent, harmonious team. Would you say diverse, interdependent, harmonious team? Diverse, interdependent, harmonious team. Every one of those words has real meaning. What is Paul? He has a term he uses for a diverse, interdependent, harmonious team of believers. What's he call it? The body of Christ or the church, yes. The body of Christ. Why, why does he use that body illustration? All right, we've got diversity. We've got all sorts of different members. We've got fingers and we've got noses and ears and eyes and feet and legs and arms. We've got all these different parts. All of them interdependent, connected, working together, and all of them working in harmony in the same purpose. You follow that? When that is absolutely essential to fruitfulness... We've been having quite the summer. We've sent one team after another out. We've sent people to Montana. We've sent people. We've just had our, our, our senior high camp come back. By the way, I'm not going to go into details, but thank you so much for praying. There was quite the event that took place. And boy, did God over use that. It was glorious what happened. But we needed every bit of your prayers. We've had, we've, we've had a, a track with, with high school, uh, with... Um, uh, boys, we've had track with girls, we've had Royal Family Kids Camp, we sent a team to Aberdeen, uh, and, and, and we, we've, all of this has gone on. Why can that happen? It's happening out of community. 
It's happening because a whole bunch of people have decided to love each other, to walk together and work together harmoniously. Out of that is what fruitfulness happens. It's not just isolated individuals, but it's you come in and you get prayed for. How many have been praying for summer missions, all, all, all these various things? Yes? So we can send people. We'll be sending people to uh, one of the poorest countries on earth again here in a few months. How do we do that? How can you do that? You have a community of people praying for them. You have a community of people strengthening them, comforting them, providing for them. I mean, you, you gave all kinds of money so children could go to camp. And 80% of that children's camp went forward for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You bought all kinds of cakes and pies and prayed for, their, for them and all of that. You, you see where I'm going with this? In America, it's so individualistic. It's fiercely independent. But fruitfulness does not come out of that. Fruitfulness comes when the people of God decide to love each other. So he says to them, I want you to love each other like I've loved you. I've been patient with you. I've been merciful to you. I've been willing to literally die for you. I want you to love each other that way. And I believe that because, as, as Northwest Church has chosen, to the degree we have chosen, to walk in obedience to those sorts of things, the fruitfulness just amps up all of a sudden. There's all of this going on through all of our lives. Not just our teams, but there's just a whole flow that comes. What he's pointing to here is this, this devoted community is very, very important. When disappointment, disagreements, envy, strife, or insults arose, they must be addressed properly so that their love for each other was restored. That love was essential. It made community possible, and community made fruitfulness possible. Number six, open communication. Would you say open communication? Open communication. Those who chose to obey him, Jesus said, would also enter into a very privileged relationship with him. He would call them friends. Listen, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves because the slave does not know what his master does. But I have called you friends because all things which I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. To be Jesus' friend meant that he would disclose to that person all that he had heard from the Father. An obedient disciple would not only receive commands but would be given revelation along with those commands. A slave was expected to obey without understanding, but a friend would be told why the command had been given. One of the greatest examples of this type of friendship with God is Abraham. God called him my friend. If we think back on the events in his life, we'll recognize that God repeatedly communicated with Abraham at a very open level. At times, he told him what he was going to do and even explained why he would do them. He taught Abraham his ways and took him into his counsel. So the sixth gift Jesus promised his disciples was open communication. He would teach them as freely as the Father had taught them. God would talk to Abraham. He comes to him and he says, I'm, go I'm going to do this. I'm going to de destroy this city. Remember that, Sodom? And then Abraham... Starts arguing with him. Now that's friendship. He, they, they, they get, he says, hey, the judge of all the earth will not be right. You're not going to kill the righteous with the wicked, are you? And he says, no, I wouldn't do that. 
And he says, well, if there were 50, you remember this? And he, he bargains him. He, he, who's he talking? He's talking to, to the Lord. The incarnate, I mean, pre, it's pre-incarnate Lord right there. Putting on the, he's, he's arguing with him. And he bargains him down from 50 to, to what? 10. He comes down to 10. Which is why, by the way, they use that term, the minion, 10. That's why in a, for a Jewish synagogue to, to be, you have to have 10 men. Because it's, 10 would preserve a city. You see, if there were 10 righteous, Sodom would stand. And, and Abraham, you could just hear him thinking, okay, I got it. I got my wife. I've got me. I mean, I've got, there's Lot, his wife, his, his daughters, their husbands, their kids. God, 10 will do. <laughs> Here's what he didn't know. <laughs> out of his entire family, his two daughters followed him really out. Remember that? His wife turns around and gets turned into a pillar of salt, whatever that is, and uh, the whole thing. When God says to you, when Jesus says, if you will obey me, if you'll give me that heart, I will talk to you as the Lord talked to Abraham. I, I, will, I will talk with you as Moses talked face to face. I will speak to you. I will explain to you. I will train you and teach you. I want you to understand. Not just do. I want your... See, he's raising children, isn't he? He's not raising slaves. You are being raised up as sons and daughters of the living God. He wants you to think like he thinks. He wants you to know what this means. This isn't a cryptic book of religious sayings. This is written by intelligent people, two intelligent people, as God gave them to write it. It means something, and he wants you to know. You can always assume. You say, well, there's stuff I don't know. Well, there's stuff I don't know. But I know this. He wants me to know. And I know if I'll kind of stay before him and keep listening, I'm going to learn stuff, and things are going to start making sense. And it's like that. It just starts opening up to you more and more. God wants to be our friend. He wants to talk to us and teach us and dialogue with us. Isn't that beautiful? He says, if you'll walk with me, let's go to the last one. And an inner assurance. The seventh and final gift was a brief but powerful reminder that Jesus was confident that his disciples would succeed. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. In effect, he told them, you didn't start this relationship. I did. I wanted you and came after you. I know that you can bear fruit. That's why I'm telling you these things. I chose you because I'm confident that you will draw people to me who will be with me forever. With those words, he placed within them an inner assurance. Even if they doubted themselves, they knew he believed in them. How how many of you would say, God actually not only found me, he came after me, maybe he tricked me, there's a whole bunch of that, you know. I thought I was going to a... <laughs> he scared the liver out of me. He, yes? But, he, but when you look back on it, I mean, he, he got you. You didn't, you didn't figure out, you know, I think I really need God. He, he got a hold of you. How many say that? Yeah, look at that. He chose you. He chose you. Everyone, there's, there's no grandchildren in God's kingdom. 
Even our own children have to have these encounters, don't they? Where God finally meets them, where they become his. God, God chose us. Jesus says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And here's what he said, that your fruit would remain. You know what that means? You're going to bring people to know me, and they will be with me forever. This is in the game. You are going to change eternal destinies. I chose you. If we stay attached, then there are seven promises. There's more, but there's seven he gave them that. Just in rapid fire, he says, here, here, here. Listen to them once more. In order to do what Jesus did, we need the same resources Jesus had. We need to be able to pray powerful prayers. We need to believe that God wants us to reach many. We need the Father's love to attend us when we minister as, as much as he did. Our hearts, like, pardon me, our hearts, like his heart, need to be lifted by the joy of seeing lives changed. We, too, need to be surrounded by a community of people who love us. We need Jesus to explain God's truth to us as openly as the Father explained it to him. And finally, each of us needs to know Jesus believes that we can bear lasting fruit for him. That night, Jesus promised those 11 men all these things. Today, he promises them to us. Do we believe him? Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.